This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. My name is William Zemsky, and I'm the head of the Division of Pain and Palliative Medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center with a strong interest in pain and sickle cell disease. I'm very pleased to moderate today's forum, the second in a series on issues in pediatric pain. The series is funded through the generosity of the May Day Fund, which has, over the years, supported investigators and projects that have dramatically improved the pain management of children throughout the world. In today's forum, we'll be discussing the pain in the sickle cell patient. Joining me is Amanda Brandau and Patricia Cavanaugh. Dr. Brandau is Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Medical College of Wisconsin and a board-certified pediatric hematologist-oncologist at Children's of Wisconsin. She specializes in the care of children with sickle cell disease in addition to other non-malignant hematologic diseases. Dr. Brandau is a physician scientist who is specifically interested in developing better ways to assess and treat pain in children with sickle cell disease. And Dr. Patricia Cavanaugh. Dr. Cavanaugh is an attending physician in the Pediatric Emergency Department at Boston Medical Center and an associate professor of pediatrics at Boston University School of Medicine. Her research interests include sickle cell disease and health disparities. Welcome to you both. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Sure. So I want to start off by talking about really the mechanism or the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease. I think a lot's changed, Amanda, in that regard. I'd say it's not your grandmother's sickle cell disease anymore, is it? No, I would say definitely not. I agree with that, Bill. So sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder in the United States. Um, There are about 100,000 people living with the disease in the U.S. However, um, we know that epidemiologic data because we have universal newborn screening in the U.S. However, as you know, Bill, there's about 3 million people or more living with sickle cell disease worldwide, and that's probably an underestimation due to the lack of newborn screening Mm -hmm. in many countries in the world. So sickle cell disease is caused by a mutation in the beta globin chain of hemoglobin, and it's inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern. And this mutation um, causes polymerization of hemoglobin in the red blood cell, which leads to the conformational change from the biconcave disc of a normal red blood cell to the sickled shape or the mm-hmm. pathognomonic sickled shape. Years and years and years ago, uh, the pathophysiology of pain and sickle cell disease was thought to be pure obstruction of blood flow through blood vessels from these very rigid sickled cells, leading to ischemia of organs, bones, other tissue, and causing severe acute pain. However, what we've come to understand over a few decades of research is that it's much, much more complex uh, than just pure vascular obstruction causing pain. And there's multiple other pathophysiologic uh, phenomenon that contribute to the pain and sickle cell disease, including, including activation of the um, inflammatory system. So it's a chronic inflammatory disease. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that because it seems like inflammation plays a big role in this whole process. Is that right? Yeah, we've come to understand that sickle cell disease is really a chronic inflammatory disorder um, and probably a lot of that being related to the chronic 
vascular occlusion or vaso-occlusion that occurs in sickle cell disease, causing activation of the immune system and chronic elevation of a lot of cytokines and chemokines, among other things. And that inflammation exists not only during baseline state, when children and adults that live with the disease um, are chronically um, inflamed at baseline, but we see a lot of these other inflammatory markers increase significantly during episodes of more acute pain. Right. So it seems to me people used to think you either were sickling or having sickle cell crises or not, but it's really not that way. It seems to be always going on. It's just how severe the sickle sickling is. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think a lot of that is supported by the chronic organ damage that we see in sickle cell disease. So pain in sickle cell disease is the most common complication. However, it's a very multi-organ system disease. So anywhere blood flows, you can have complications from sickle cell disease, whether it's stroke, um, problems in the lungs, chronic kidney disease, problems um, in the retina. And so that chronic organ system uh, changes certainly suggests or supports that this inflammatory processes are probably activated at baseline all the time. And then something exacerbates that, whether it's um, you know, stress or illness or even weather changes sometimes, something exacerbates the sickling, and then you get sort of these acute, more acute changes, such as potentially acute pain or acute onset of stroke. And it's not just a red blood cell disease, as you mentioned, White blood cells, neutrophils, platelets are all involved in this process when there's vasoocclusion. Is that correct, right? Correct, correct. So, so historically, as you suggested decades ago, it was thought to be really just driven by the red blood cell changes from that change in hemoglobin. However, we're understanding that, like you said, white blood cells are involved, platelets are involved, activation of the coagulation system is also involved, the endothelium is disrupted, which then leads to a lot of pathophysiologic processes. And so it's it's becoming more and more evident that the red blood cell is the initial inciting ish problem due to the a genetic mutation. However, it's really more of a global disease. Um, I guess just like everything else in medicine, and it's a lot more complicated than we used to think. Exactly. So let's just uh, move on and talk a little bit about a case. So uh, there's a a young boy that I take care of at at my hospital named Jermaine, who's an 11-year-old who has a hemoglobin SS disease. And Trish, he's he's not hospitalized all that often, only once or twice in a year. He rarely uses opioids at home. But yesterday, he was outside and he was playing. And then this morning, he woke up with a lot of leg pain. Is this a typical kind of scenario you see at your hospital as well? Absolutely. Um, So these kids... You know, they're children. They're supposed to be outside. They're supposed to be playing. But, you know, sometimes it's the weather change. And so when they come into the emergency department, this is typically what we see. So pain could indicate not just, well, not even just, but vasoclusive or pain, but there's other things that pain may indicate. Is that right? Right. So I always think of it as the, t- as the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. right? Where is that pain? So mm-hmm. pain that seems to be in a rib, it could be really chest pain in the lung, signifying acute chest, which is very serious and is the leading cause of death in children and adults with sickle cell disease. Pain in the abdomen could mean that an organ is unhappy. Splenic sequestration in children is something we always are thinking about. And that can manifest as pain in the belly or sometimes pain in the shoulder because it's touching the diaphragm. And is it also, is there any evidence to suggest that if we treat pain quickly, we do better? So pain alone might be a reason to be treated rapidly, at least in sickle cell disease? Absolutely. So that's a great question. Uh, Pain should be treated rapidly for a number of reasons. Number one, 
pain in and of itself is severe. So think of a woman in labor. When I talk to people who have had this pain, it's at that level. Mm -hmm. No matter what they look like on the outside, they are in agony. And so treating them quickly is paramount. And why is because there's a number of reasons. Uh, there can be other complications if it's not treated quickly. Um, one being if it's you know in their abdomen or in their rib, they might splint. And then that can lead to acute chest later on, especially if they're admitted. Um, in older adolescents and adults, we worry a lot about other embolic events, such as a pulmonary embolism. We've had that happen in our hospital as, in children as young as 16. Wow. And so pain needs to be treated, needs to be assessed quickly and treated quickly. And you know, we did a, a study at the adult hospital that I'm affiliated with, and it seemed like if we treated pain more rapidly, less patients needed hospitalization, less, the, the ER stay was actually shorter. So I think there are some benefits in that realm as well. Absolutely. And since we're talking about children today, that data is very true for children, probably even more so, okay. because parents often bring in their kids right away. Mm -hmm. If they're having severe pain, their pain home pain regimen isn't working, they tend to come in pretty quickly. And so one strategy that is recommended by the guidelines that a lot of people use um, is really trying to get that first analgesic dose into them quickly. In children, we're lucky because we have this medication called fentanyl, which can be delivered through the nose. Okay, tell me a little bit more about how that would be done. The wonderful thing is you order the dose, you pull it up into a syringe, and there's a little uh, device called an atomizer. You put it in the nose, you squirt half in one nostril, the other half in the other nostril, works within five minutes, and gives you a 30-minute window to get that IV equipment and the staff over to put place that IV. So fentanyl works pretty well for this? It works beautifully. And so you can give two doses, and that would count as your first analgesic dose that you would give in the ED setting. And kids tolerate that pretty well? Very yeah. well. Yeah. So one study that was done at my institution, we started doing this in 2010. Mm -hmm. Since that time, as my last count, there's at least 50 institutions who've been using it across the country. Some children, especially if they haven't had a lot of pain, all they need is two doses of intranasal fentanyl, and then we can trans, you know, basically uh, transition them to oral pain medications, sparing them an IV. So they don't even need an IV. Exactly. That, that would be wonderful. For the kids that need the IV, though, mm -hmm. imagine you come into the ER, you're triaged quickly, you're put into a bed, mm -hmm. you are given a squirt in the nose, it does burn a little bit, admit it, but you get some pain relief so that you relax a little bit. The nurses anecdotally say that getting the IV in is just that much easier. And then you, when you give that second dose within that you know, half an hour of giving the intranasal fentanyl followed again within another half an hour, give a second dose. Um, so give three total. It's amazing what you can do. Studies have shown that if you start with the intranasal fentanyl, that more than... The discharge rate home goes up. In our institution, we were only sending a third of kids home because it took a long time to get that first dose in. Stress goes up. It's just harder to do pain capture. Now we send more than half of our kids home. And this study has been repeated at other institutions such as Hopkins and at Emory in Atlanta. We'd like to turn to our audience now and ask a question. Internasal fentanyl is an interesting option. Is this something you've thought about or something you think you could use in your setting? How would you go about doing that? Tell me, what's the role of the, both the nurse and the physician in, this, uh, in the emergency department? What are they doing during these uh, intermittent opioid uh, deliveries? This is where it's key to have a plan, right? A standardized algorithm. 
Because if you have that, then the nurses know what they're doing and the docs do too. We often, uh, in certain settings, we have plans that are individualized to the patient. So it spells out the doses that they should have. Other institutions like my own, we use weight-based uh, plans. If you wanted a patient to have an individualized plan, how would you operationalize that? What would you do? So this is where we really have close connections with our hematologist. Mm -hmm. They know the patient the best. They know what pain medications they're on in the outpatient setting. And so we work really closely. So especially as children age and their, their sickle cell disease becomes more complex, mm -hmm. perhaps the weight-based dosing doesn't really work or they're on a lot of pain medications every day at home. Mm -hmm. And so we work really closely with them to develop it. Um, in the electronic health record, there are places where you can put care plans. And so we use something called an FYI flag. And so we actually have that flag on the tracking board in the ER. So as soon as someone comes in with sickle cell disease, they're in a registry and a flag comes up, so they're triaged quickly. The second flag gives the plan. And so especially for our adults, where the doses can range widely, these individualized plans can be super helpful. So you guys are really kind of at the cutting edge of this. We've right. had terrific partnerships uh -huh. and being in a hospital where we take care of children and adults, mm -hmm. we recognize that there, there was a disparity as children were aging out and going to the adult side. Mm -hmm. They got this beautiful algorithm that everyone knew what they were doing and then when the adult side really didn't capture them the same way, mm -hmm. There was a problem. So it was us pediatricians teaching the adult doctors how to do it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. But we just shared best practices. And uh, what we realized was that the weight-based dosing mm -hmm. could work for some, but we actually have individual plans for the adults. And so say those doses of opioids don't work, then what's the next step? What do we do then? And so um, what we often do in the ED setting is we try three doses. If it's not really working, then we will go to starting a patient-controlled analgesia, mm -hmm. PCA, and admit them. And so um, the one thing that a PCA does, it gives a continuous infusion of medication just so we don't lose where we started, as well as bolus dosing. Mm -hmm. I know certain institutions, you know, they, some would prefer to give an oral medication, oral opioid, um, and then do the button on top of that. Okay. So we all have various practices. And other things that you can do while they're in the emergency department? Are there other medications? Are there other uh, supportive measures that you can employ? Absolutely. So the one um, measure to always think about, you know, other adjunctive medications. So NSAIDs, Toradol is a favorite, as long as they don't have any kidney issues or you don't think they're dehydrated. Other things, keep them warm, right? The emergency department is often a cold place. Heat packs, warm blankets can really make a big difference. And then distraction, allow them to be on the phone. If there's something that TVs are wonderful, just because they look comfortable or talking on the phone does not mean their pain is zero. It can still be a nine or a 10, but they're using distraction as a valuable technique. So now, Amanda, as we transition to the inpatient uh, environment, so they've been in Trisha's emergency department, they've been placed on a PCA, now they're up on the floor. What are kind of the next key steps in that whole progression? 
Thanks, Trish and Bill. So initiation of the PCA in the emergency department is incredibly, incredibly important because mm -hmm. as the patient, as you can imagine, is transitioning from an emergency department up into the inpatient unit, there can be quite a delay. Mm -hmm. And so if that PCA is not accessible to them to be able to continue to give themselves pain medication, that you can really get behind. And then all the wonderful work that Trish and her colleagues have done in the ER is kind of undone if they're waiting, you know, sometimes hours to get another dose of pain medication as they transition and the you know the patients assessed and the residents write the orders and so sort of standard practice I would say at many sickle cell centers is to continue the PCA obviously with some sort of opioid based therapy and how that PCA is administered meaning whether there is a continuous infusion as Trish suggested or a bolus dose um, both of them together um, is is really I think institution and really patient patient dependent based on the severity of pain that that individual patient is having at during that admission um, bill as as you know and have you've been working with me over the last couple of years on the american society of hematology um, pain practice guidelines we address this very question mm -hmm. of whether we should recommend a continuous infusion of an opioid in addition to bolus dosing via the PCA and, you know, undertook a large systematic review trying to answer that question. And just like many of the questions that we tried to answer, there really is no data in sickle cell disease to, to, that allowed us to make a strong recommendation one way or the other to administer continuous infusion of opioids. So, you know, we tried to look at not only efficacy or effectiveness, but also toxicity and side effects and adverse events. And and really, it's really patient-dependent and age-dependent, probably. And adults, oftentimes, they're used less commonly because of other comorbidities uh, versus in pediatrics. So, Yes, certainly in adults, I think there's data suggests that there are more respiratory events on a Correct. continuous infusion, but not Correct. as much on kids. Correct. One of the thoughts that I've had is maybe in that first 24 hours, you don't, not for everybody at least, you know, default into a continuous opioid infusion. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one idea. I think we have to see that in practice and see how it works. I and then agree, if the yeah. patient's not doing well, then we start the continuous infusion. Then you infusion. start the continuous infusion. Yeah. Yep, exactly. I know that the guidelines, many of the things that Trish mentioned, the guidelines were supportive as well. But for the patient who's on opioids and not uh, doing all that well or not improving, there isn't something else in the guidelines brought up yeah, uh, that might be exactly. helpful. I think all of us that have provided care for children living with sickle cell disease, there are patients who come in and despite being on opioid-based uh, therapy, a continuous infusion with both PC on top of it, also getting a non-steroidal as well, they, their pain is still not controlled. And, you know, it's either non-responsive or it's become refractory. So what do you do then? Um, you know, we, we also have some non-pharmacologic measures that we can potentially talk about as well that we should introduce too. Um, but one of the questions we asked, are there other... Um, pharmacologic things that we can do. And we asked the question about ketamine and a continuous infusion of ketamine during an inpatient stay, not a bolus use of ketamine in right. the emergency department. And, you know, we looked extensively at those data in sickle cell disease, and there's um, a, a bit of data. They're all um, no randomized controlled trials, but enough data that we felt there was a signal that uh, continuous infusion of sub-anesthetic doses of ketamine could provide some um, effective 
adjuvant analgesia to people that are patients that are more refractory to sort of first-line opioid-based therapy. And I think when you say sub-anesthetic, so it's usually starting around 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per hour as opposed to a bolus dose of ketamine, which might be 10 times that Correct. much. So Correct. it doesn't, it's not an anesthetic dose. It's not a sedation dose. It's an analgesic dose. And anecdotally, we found for some patients, not for everybody, that it can be quite effective. Um, and seems to be safe as well because it doesn't depress your respiratory drive like the opioids do. Yes. Um, other, you mentioned non-pharmacologic therapies. Other things we should be thinking about on the yeah. inpatient unit? Yeah, so we um, looked at this question as well, and some of the things we looked at were um, sort of guided audiovisual visual relaxation, massage, yoga, TENS units, um, acupuncture. You know, there's a variety of data varies uh, some more than others um, that really look at these questions within the context of sickle cell disease. And, you know, I think we need a lot more research mm -hmm. in this area because some of these things can be, I think, quite powerful. And trying to understand how they work within sickle cell disease is really important. However, there was enough data and very low-risk interventions that probably every child should be offered when they come for pain. So guided audiovisual relaxation through child, child life or psychologists or other people that are trained to deliver this is, is probably quite effective, although we don't have the hard data to say it, um, but very low risk as well. Um, acupuncture, we don't have a lot of studies in the context of acute pain and sickle cell disease, but maybe one that should be looked at as well. We looked at TENS units as well, mm -hmm. and we made a, 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 a recommendation to potentially try that again, low risk. Um, but very little data in sickle cell disease, but I think something, starting to think about it and incorporating these non-pharmacologic measures in combination with the pharmacologic measures probably offers children the best therapy that we know and yeah. the best outcome. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the things that we've tried to do is bring physical therapy in earlier, so both for the TENS unit, but just for the functional approach, getting kids moving and out of bed, obviously for a variety of reasons, we don't want kids sitting in bed for multiple days. So even though they have pain, they have to be start to be functional. And I think the more we can uh, set that as an expectation, I, I think the kids will do better as well. And to that point, Bill, you know, we want children to be uh, functional. And the one thing that I forgot to mention in the ER setting is really I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of Benadryl. Mm -hmm. So kids come in, they have a lot of itching due to opioids. And so the one thing we really caution against is the use of IV diphen. Uh, uh, Benadryl because that can be additional sedating without giving any pain relief. Mm -hmm. And so oral Benadryl, far better. But even one thing to really consider if you are admitting a patient and they are they do have a PCA or a line, consider low-dose naloxone. Mm -hmm. It does not uh, counteract the opioid benefit, but it certainly can help with uh, puritis that is induced by opioids. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that is a strong consideration. And something else you were talking about earlier, Trish, a couple things. One was a, a bowel regimen. Um, tell oh. us a little bit more about that. Yes, please. And so that is one thing. So we give a lot of opioids, especially if they've been in the hospital for a while mm -hmm. uh, and at high doses. 
but a lot of kids, if they're not put on a really good bowel regimen inpatient, they come back to the ED a couple days later and they're very backed up and sometimes they even have to be admitted for clean out. So really make sure that they're on a bowel regimen, both inpatient and then after they go home. If they're, especially mm -hmm. if they're on a taper of opioids, um, they really do need that bowel regimen as well. Great. And you also had mentioned, I think earlier, tapering the opioid. Yes. And so, you know, just working in the ER, we see a lot of kids come in. They are admitted for three to five days. They go home. And if they were on high doses or perhaps they had a two-week admission, they're sent home and sometimes they are just given, you know, medications, PRN, rather than given a true taper. They can often come back with rebound pain because they didn't know exactly how to take their opioids. And so putting patients on very clear tapers, especially if they're on high doses inpatient or were uh, in a prolonged inpatient stay, is really important so they don't taper too rapidly and end up with uh, withdrawal symptoms or just rebound pain. Okay. I think what we should do now is talk a little bit about chronic pain. And, and you know, we're seeing more and more kids, especially in uh, later adolescence and certainly early adulthood, uh, developing chronic pain and sickle cell disease. And the case that uh, I describe here is about a young man I know named Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan uh, is 16-year-old. He also has hemoglobin SS disease. And uh, over the past year, from 15 to 16, he started to become hospitalized much more frequently, and he actually had 10 hospitalizations, which is certainly a lot. Uh, he says there's never a time when he doesn't have pain. He's transitioned from just using his opioids intermittently, and now, although nobody said use them daily, he ends up using daily opioids. He also has avascular necrosis of his left, left hip, and he's in constant hip pain. Uh, he has constant lower back pain, thigh pain, and he also gets headaches. Um, and we start to see this where kids are not just getting isolated pain. They're getting kind of pain all over their bodies. And, and uh, so what do we know about this chronic pain and sickle cell disease, Amanda? Yeah. This case illustrates something very commonly that we see that sort of emerges as children age into the adolescent, young adult, and certainly adult age groups. Um, really a landmark study. I think people that take care of children and adults living with sickle cell disease kind of felt like this chronic pain was an issue. However, a landmark study that was published um, and led by Dr. Wally Smith in 2008 really gave us the epidemiologic data to show that this chronic pain is really a true entity within sickle cell disease. And so, yes, there's very severe acute pain but this chronic pain develops with increasing age. And so this uh, study really helped us understand the burden um, and found that 29% of adults with sickle cell disease reported pain on greater than 95% of their diary days. This was a diary-based day, diary based study. And it also found that approximately 55% of adults reported pain on more than half of their days. Mm -hmm. And so it really hit home that this is a a, a distinct entity within sickle cell disease that probably has distinct mechanisms and potentially needs to be treated differently than the acute severe pain that people experience. And I think that you brought up a couple of really important points. One is that uh, pain on more than half your days for three months is considered chronic pain. So over half of the patients in this study had chronic pain. 
And I think the other thing that you really highlighted that's important is this is a different mechanism. This isn't vasoocclusive pain, and we'll talk a little bit more of that. I do want to know, note that uh, at our center, we're just doing a study now where we think we've shown that about 15% of kids up to age 21 have chronic pain. So not as, as common as in the adult world, but certainly a big problem, kids with sickle cell disease, if 15% have chronic pain, that's a new entity that we need to really pay attention to and find some treatment paradigms that work. So let's just talk about, again, that, that trajectory of pain. So we know in the beginning it's acute, um, it's self-limited. Just walk me through what happens there. Sure. As you can see on the slide, there's really a trajectory of pain and sickle cell disease that we kind of alluded to. So during the infancy, so young children, zero to two years of age, they have the least amount of pain. Um, and when they do have pain, it usually presents with very acute onset of pain, often something called dactylitis, which is pain and swelling in the hands or feet. And it can be exquisitely painful when children don't want to walk, use their hands, their daily activities. And so then as children age into the more of the toddler, childhood age groups, we can see pain continue to occur, um, usually acute intermittent pain uh, resulting in both emergency department visits and hospitalizations. But we often uh, see a lot of the pain managed at home. And one of the things we're also um, very aware of is that the pain that brings patients into the hospital is really, as Trisha alluded to, the tip of the iceberg. There's often a lot of pain that our patients and families manage at home or they actually don't come see us. And so it's important when you think about the amount of pain somebody's having to also ask what they're doing at home, not just counting healthcare utilization. And then when we transition into the adolescent and adult age group is when we start seeing these acute painful events continue to increase in frequency. We also see their length of hospital stay becomes longer, and that's been shown by epidemiologic published data. And we also see this emergence of chronic pain, as you were alluding, alluding to, Bill, even in the childhood adolescent age group where it causes a lot of functional disability. There's psychological comorbidities that also um, are involved in this or as a result of this. Um, we see you know, patients not able to attend to school as often, um, so it really starts affecting their quality of life. And then as they emerge into the adult age group, we see the continued um, increase of the prevalence of chronic pain. And these chronic uh, acute pain events are then superimposed on their chronic pain, which is also important to remember. So, you know, the acute pain event is really when a patient maybe has something else going on that triggered an acute pain event, or they've reached a threshold where their chronic pain just becomes so bad that they then seek care for acute pain. And again, functional morbidity, um, including difficulty working, holding down jobs, um, and really functioning. Sometimes one of the biggest challenges is really differentiating between what's acute pain, what's acute on chronic pain, and what's chronic pain, right? Absolutely. And uh, I just want to let the audience know there's a couple of recent articles uh, that we won't get to in depth, but have really uh, focused on developing diagnostic criteria for both acute pain and sickle cell disease, including that uh, case where it's acute on chronic, and also chronic pain and sickle cell disease. So these can be helpful tools to evaluate patients, but also teach and help people understand what chronic pain and sickle cell disease is. But what I want to do focus a little bit on is really how this transition happens. What's going on uh, pathophysiologically, if you will, because we know it's not just any more vasoclusive pain. Other things are going on. What are the causes? What are the drivers for this? And 
then how do we how do we deal with it? Sure. So as we discussed um, previously, acute pain we think is driven a lot by vasoocclusion and this sort of uh, you know, chronic inflammatory other and other responses that lead to these sort of acute exacerbations of pain. And I, I would argue that we probably don't fully understand acute pain either and really what are the key drivers of it other than vascular obstruction or vasal occlusion. Even though we have a lot of understanding of pathophysiology, I think we still have a lot more way to go to understand really what exacerbates and what drives an acute pain event. But what, what is becoming evident is the chronic pain is likely initiated by, of course, sickle cell disease and some of the pathophysiology. But as these children and adults age and develop sort of this chronic pain syndrome, we're understanding there's probably elements of sensitization at the level of the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system that is either propagating the pain, initiating the pain. Um, and, and, and the reason I say we're beginning to understand is that there's a lot of emerging data over the last decade, once we've understand the clinical phenomenon of chronic pain, to understand the biology both in animal models and in humans, can we think of more targeted therapies? Tell me about a little bit about some of that work going on. Some of, I know that you've been involved in it sure. personally. Sure. So some of the work, um, some of the earliest studies are actually done in uh, animal models or mice with sickle cell disease, where they found that they were had um, increased behavior uh, changes to stimuli such as mechanical heat and cold stimuli um, in the animal model. So really be pain behavior studies in animals were abnormal or they had this hypersensitivity mm -hmm. as compared to control uh, animals. And then there was some additional work looking at neuropeptides in animals, also looking at uh, receptors through the TRIP family, so mechanical receptors, heat and cold pain receptors, really trying to understand some of the neurophysiology and the neurobiology of uh, sickle cell pain. And then some other data then tried to translate that or other studies tried to translate that into the humans. And some of the work that I was involved in um, used uh, 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 psychophysical testing called quantitative sensory testing, where we tried to look at patients uh, with sickle cell disease, their response to these uh, stimuli, these uh, sort of provoked pain, whether it's mechanical uh, pressure, stimuli, heat, or cold, and compared them to people that uh, do not have sickle cell disease or healthy controls and found that patients with sickle cell disease have increased sensitivity to cold stimuli um, and to heat stimuli and the suggestion of increased sensitivity to mechanical stimuli, which was interesting to us because cold, um, as we alluded to in the first case, is one of the things that can stimulate sickle cell pain. And it's actually one of the things our patients use to treat pain. They really like heating pads and warm blankets, as Trisha alluded to. So so in some ways, it makes sense. It makes sense, yeah. yep. It's always good when your research makes sense. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I just want to talk a little bit about treatment now. We know that there are not a lot of great treatments for uh, chronic pain. And certainly the opioid crisis has made it even more challenging to care for patients with sickle cell disease. So in your setting, that you know, it becomes really important to understand that there is a chronic pain syndrome going on, right, Trish? And and but the perception of patients who come to the emergency department and the challenges with getting opioid therapy is real. Oh, it absolutely is real. I think especially when you're talking about children, 
with sickle cell disease. So treating a child with aggressive pain management with opioids, and I'm saying give them a dose every 30 minutes, three, you know, three rounds of medications. It's a lot, but this is what they need to get on top of their pain uh, in order for them to hopefully get home. And if not, if not get home, then have a shorter admission. Unfortunately, with the opioid epidemic, uh, I feel like sickle cell disease has been lumped into a lot of the other chronic pain syndromes, such as low back pain and uh, other things that we would not necessarily use opioids for. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when the first uh, recommendations came out, they said, you know, don't count cancer in that group, but they never said anything about sickle cell disease until this last year. Right. So it was assumed that sickle cell disease should not be treated with opioids, kind of. Is that well, no one in the, you know, as we were talking about the opioid epidemic, no one specified that sickle cell disease, the treatment that we have today, especially to manage somebody with severe acute pain, the treatments we have today are opioids. Right. And so that, uh, without really spelling that out to a lot of ED physicians, they were just seeing so many, you know, people who were overdosing, having so many complications, they did not really understand that sickle cell disease really needs to be carved out and really belongs with those patients who have cancer that we would never hold back opioids from. And, and right now, certainly, opioids are part of the care plan for both patients with sickle cell disease, both with acute and chronic pain, until we have a better answer than opioids. I think it really is important to emphasize that for those patients with chronic pain, they need opioids too. So with the guidelines that we helped develop, uh, Amanda, there was also some other thoughts about uh, chronic pain and how to manage that or what the evidence is at sickle cell disease. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot. Yeah, um, exactly, Bill. There was, uh, unfortunately, very, very minimal data, almost if any, if I may say, looking at trials of pharmacologic therapy for chronic pain and sickle cell disease outside of opioids. And actually, there's really no data looking at opioids either in sickle cell disease. And so part of the guidelines process was a large systematic review where we really looked at all the literature and um, because there was such minimal literature, we dipped into the indirect evidence. So mm -hmm. there is quite a bit of literature around non-opioid pharmacologic therapy outside of sickle cell disease chronic pain. And so we felt like it was important to look at these data to see if we could apply some of this in an indirect way to sickle cell disease. And that's, in fact, what we did. And one of the chronic pain conditions that we looked at was fibromyalgia, because we felt like there we had a consensus from our panel that there's some parallels between you know, centralized, potentially fibromyalgia pain and um, sort of centralized pain syndromes and sort of the chronic pain and sickle cell disease. And the reason we drew that parallel is because some of the biology that we begin to understand is probably similar. Um, and so we looked at some other drugs, including SNRIs, uh, gabapentinoids, um, the TCAs, to see are, could some of these be used as options in sickle cell disease. And we ended up you know, realizing that, yes, they should be. Um, and I don't think that these other drugs are commonly thought of for people uh, that provide care to children and adults with sickle cell disease. Um, and so it was important to us to, to help raise that awareness that there are other options that people may benefit from because they work on completely different mechanisms. 
Right. It goes back to that multimodal therapy that it's not, you know, we're not uh, advocating for opioids alone for patients with sickle cell disease and chronic pain, but adding other therapies. And certainly, though, we don't have a lot of data, direct data to support them. It would be reasonable to trial some of these other gabapentinoids, SNRIs, TCAs that have been used for other chronic pain conditions, right? And then we also looked at non-pharmacologic treatment for chronic pain. Absolutely. I mean, pharmacologic is only one part of what we have in our toolbox when we treat chronic pain, and the non-pharmacologic treatments are incredibly important to incorporate those also into care. Looking at uh, CBT um, is one of the things that really has good data to show that it can be quite effective in chronic pain conditions, and so incorporating that by a well-trained person who knows how to teach patients that is is very, very important. So addressing non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic together as an entire comprehensive care plan is really the best way to take care of people living with sickle cell disease you know, or I chronic pain. I think that's pain. a really important message because sometimes we just want to go with the medication-only route, and that clearly is not the best. In my in my patients, I always say, you know, I, I, I would rather have you on more of the non-pharmacologic therapies. They're safe. There's a fairly large evidence base that they work. So CBT is a good one. Uh, Exercise uh, is something I don't think we use enough of, in, certainly in sickle cell disease and other chronic pain conditions. So it's really getting the patient's access to that and getting that part of care kind of incorporated in pain and sickle cell disease is really important. And can I just say something about access too? Sure. And I think access is, is, a, is a key. I think mm-hmm. that the access can be limited for some of our patients. Um, and so I think the more we can increase the access to care for some of these non-pharmacologic treatments and being creative of ways um, to deliver that care. I know, Bill, you were involved in sort of a web-based uh, delivery mm-hmm. of CBT, and I think that's a really important and novel way to try to bring these non-pharmacologic treatments to our patients and make them more accessible. Right. I'll, I'll actually mention that now. There's an uh, online program that's available in the App Store called WebMap. Uh, and it was developed uh, predominantly by a woman named Tanya Palermo out at uh, in Seattle. We studied it in sickle cell disease as well, and, as well, and now it's available just on the App Store for free download, and it has modules that can teach you CBT. And there are other uh, web-based studies that I know are ongoing looking at pain self-management. So that's a really – we're trying to make these more accessible, these treatments more accessible to patients, and that becomes really important. I think another thing the guidelines uh, did mention was transfusion, which wouldn't be typical for other types of chronic pain, obviously, but in sickle cell disease, does it have a role? Yeah, so um, chronic transfusions is what you're suggesting, Bill, which was meaning is sickle cell disease. We give somebody donor red blood cells essentially every month to suppress the hemoglobin S percent down, so whether less than 30% or less than 50% potentially for pain. Um, And it's a very effective therapy for some complications of sickle cell disease, including stroke. Um, And so the question is, does it have a role uh, for acute or chronic pain in sickle cell disease? So we did ask that question. Um, You know, again, we were, we were, we had lack of data directly to answer our question, although we did find that when red blood cell transfusions were initiated in another for another reason, such as in large stroke trials, 
um, where they randomized patients to chronic red cell transfusions or not, we there was very good data to say that the acute pain events or hospitalizations for acute pain events significantly decreased in patients that were placed on red cell transfusions. However, the population was a bit indirect because those patients were not the patients that were seeking transfusions for recurrent acute pain. So they probably have a role, although that trial probably still needs to be done to really sure. answer that question definitively. Now for chronic pain, we don't really know. Okay. Do red cell transfusions alter what we think the biology of chronic pain is? I'm not sure we know. So if this sensitization has already occurred, is it reversible in our mm -hmm. patients? And I think that question is still out there. Sure. So I think we're going to finish up soon, but I want to hear, Trish, first from you, some key things that you think really as we finish up are important for folks to know. If you could just tell people a couple things, the key things that you want to emphasize as we finish up. So in the emergency department, if you're going to take away three things, one would be to really triage these children and adults with sickle cell disease at a high priority level. If you're using the emer emergency severity index, it should be ESI2. So trauma bay is the top level, it's the next level down. That allows rapid assessment to make sure there isn't something else going on but then also the opportunity to treat that pain aggressively and quickly. And so three doses, uh, three rounds of treatment. So the first dose in children, consider intranasal fentanyl, quick, immediate pain relief, get that IV started. And then if you are sending them inpatient, you know, consider starting a PCA so that you do not lose any ground you made in pain capture, just so that they go from the ED to the inpatient stay with continuous opioids on board. If you're going home, consider giving an oral and, wa and waiting a half an hour to an hour. Make sure that pain capture lasts so you're not sending somebody an, an hour ride home. They ha have pain come back and then need to come back to the hospital. And Amanda, can you give us some closing advice for the audience? Yeah, I think one of the things really to remember is that sickle cell pain is both acute and chronic, and they're most likely distinct entities with overlap, but distinct entities meaning probably different underlying driving pathophysiology, so it needs to really be thought of in that way. Then I also think the importance of using all the tools in the toolbox I think is incredibly important. I think hematologists are... Um, classically treated pharmacologically with sickle cell pain and used opioids only. Um, and I think we we're, we're really need to expand that and collaborate with um, other people and other providers who actually have these tools. And so collaborating with pain physicians, collaborating with our psychologists, with our social work and child life to really give everyone the most comprehensive care that we know is available to them um, in the context sort of, of a medical home that can treat both their sickle cell disease and offer disease-modifying therapy for their sickle cell disease, but then also treat their pain um, with the people that know how to expertly treat that. Yeah, I think that multidisciplinary care is essential for sickle cell disease. And we learned so much from each other. I think it has really helped move the field forward. So I really want to thank the two of you for helping us understand a little more about sickle cell disease, and hopefully our audience feels more comfortable taking care of these patients now and really understanding how to best manage the pain of this very difficult, uh, challenging condition. Thank you. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.
For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.